for asking me to chair this session on the lived experience of COVID-19. I think the dust is settled, although we are a little worried about this second wave, which we're seeing in Europe. And I know in my own space, there are one or two odd cases popping up again, where as it was quiet for, for a number of weeks, actually. We're going to be asking uh, Boniwe, who is a community healthcare worker working in Soweto, about her experiences as a healthcare worker, having to help with screening um, and managing to see three to five patients per day. So to help you. And then we will be speaking to Notemba Eriksana, who is from Bloemfontein, and will be sharing her very personal story of being COVID positive and recovering, but sadly her husband passing away from COVID-19. So we appreciate her sharing her story. Liz Gwether is a professor and head of palliative care at the University of Cape Town and one of the pioneers of palliative care in South Africa. Um, and then Juanita Aronser, who works for Department of Health in the Western Cape in the Metropole and who really is a champion for palliative care. And I think without her championship, things in the Western Cape Metropole would have been quite a lot different uh, with regards to the patient experience in COVID. Right, if we can kick off, Boniwe, would you be happy to share with us some of your experiences and, and the particular challenges that you experienced uh, during the COVID time? The biggest one would be live, being at home and having kids around you at the time when you come back from work and you're not knowing if already you have contacted with the disease or the pandemic itself and then we have my I'll be having my mom who's old and I'm thinking about hey what happens now during this time when I come back at home what happens to the clothes that I'm wearing what happens uh, how do I deal with being with them around the hugs, the kisses that I used to give uh, the kids inside the house? They, it, that became a problem because now I, I felt like I was in isolation of myself on my own because now I needed to, to play it safe so that I can make, I keep themselves also. But we tried. I tried. So this is the problem, I think, when you have to go out and do the caring in your professional capacity but knowing that you're exposing your own family to that risk, which, which is a challenge. And I, I know in my own family was quite a challenge trying to figure out how we would manage it. And if I was to become positive, what impact that would have on my family and how we would deal with that. And did your family, were they able to stay safe? That's another challenge too, because now I'm like, my mom, she's already old and she's taking a hypertension medicine. So whenever, and during that time it was already winter. So now we had to have that uh, situation where I have to think, is it COVID now that she's contacted or is just the normal flu that everybody has? So I had to make sure that, because now even bringing her into the facility, the clinic itself, and saying, go and test. Uh, it was like putting her in some more danger without knowing exactly if, if it's not uh, uh, the COVID, then it's only just the flu. 
do I say to her, go to the clinic and, con- and, find, and go and get yourself a, a COVID at the end of the day? So I had to make sure that whatever that is there, I make sure that I say to her, quarantine yourself. You have to stay in, inside the house, help her with some vitamins that she can drink in order to say, let's see if that flu subsides along the days when it comes, because now we no longer know which way to take it. Should I bring it to the clinic or shouldn't? And what about now that the, my mother is feeling this way, she's staying with the grandkids. Now I have to think also, what about the grandkids that she's staying with while we are at work, all of us and my sisters? So it was very hectic, but mm-hmm. uh, she was fine at the end of the day. That's good to hear. And in terms of your work, what kind of challenges did you experience there? The situation was that now we were not given a proper PPE. We were not given, we we had to find ourselves scratching and fighting for even the sanitizer itself. So imagine having to go to a household where you do not even know of those people, uh, whether they are negative or positive, you have to come in, screen them, find out if they are, and some of them, they can't even be collaborating with you. They'll be like, okay, you are the one who's coming with the, uh, this virus. Now you, we want to come in and ask us questions. But then again, you have to think, this is my job, and you have to explain, this is my job, then I need to make sure that you are healthy, despite the fact that you think I'm the one who's not healthy, but I'm concerned about you. And now it becomes a challenge that, how do I bring the gap between me and my clients that I'm going to see every day? Because now we don't trust each other. I, I don't trust them, they don't trust me. And now I have to know within the people that are, the space that I'm working around in that how many people do I keep protected? And am I able to do my job properly by keeping everybody protect, protected if there's no trust? I needed to start afresh and really dig deep into them that they do need to trust me that I'm not going to get into their houses. I'll, I'll rather stand outside. Raining, cold, dusty, then it's fine. But I had to find a way to work amongst all those situations. It was very difficult, I must say. Sounds very challenging, but it sounds like you had to be creative to find ways of of, of managing your home life and, and your work. I think the PPE was very challenging for everybody, even the sanitizer in the beginning. Did that become a little easier over time as, as it became more available? Yes, it, for me, it was a little bit better because now I have to, I have my own sanitizer. And every time when I'm going to use that sanitizer, I need to be able to know that the patient that I'm, uh, I'm going into inside the house does have the sanitizer. And people do not have money to buy the sanitizers. And sometimes they even the things that are easy to make in, to make your own sanitizer inside the house, they become even a challenge because we are talking about a, a nation of people who do not who struggle to have something to eat for themselves. So now you have to find a way to say you can use this way bleach and then they'll have to know bleach is, it needs money to buy for it. So I sometimes have to pick up the one that I've got 
for something sometimes for those whom I think now I can see that they do need it, but they don't have means to buy it. Even the mask itself. So you had you come in, you do you try to idea people, and then they be like, I do not have a mask. Then I have to take out the other one that I have myself, which is my last PPE, and give it to the so that you can have the conversation like normally with our mask on. So yeah. And and even soap and water, I can imagine for some people would have been a challenge. Yes, indeed, sanitation would be a problem because now, even now that you find that our taps are leaking, sometimes the water is not there and then people have to go and fetch some water. It, it, it's, it was just too much. And on the chat from Linda Greer for asking about uh, the stigma that uh, community healthcare workers had to face. I know also many of the carers who worked in frail care facilities and old age homes were quite stigmatized because it was felt that they were the ones who were carrying the COVID virus into these facilities. So do you think this was an issue for you? It sounds, sounds like the stigma was a problem. Yes, it was. It was a problem. And uh, the stigma wasn't only reflecting on us only as community health workers. Because I remember there was a time when we went to uh, another patient of ours, we went to, to, to check up on her. Uh, that patient had a child who was a, a teacher at school. And then a, 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 the child contracted the, the, uh, the virus. And then she came home. And when she came home, also her mother contracted the virus. So now the people, even the community around her place, they excluded her, always trying to find a way to say, she's got COVID, she's got COVID, and pointing fingers. And when we came in, we were also in a, 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 in a state whereby we wanted to find a ways of saying to her, you, people will always talk, and we are also being told that we are carrying it and to not come into uh, their houses because we are the ones carrying the very same uh, COVID, so they won't, open up, they won't open up their homes for us. So now that we, have, we are having this patient who's tested positive, this patient wants to know, what do I do now? Because even my community, I cannot even go around people pointing fingers saying I'm, I'm, I'm the carrier now. And now that you guys are coming into my house, the situation is becoming worse now because people think when, when we as community health workers, we come into a house, it's all about that, that house that means somebody's sick. They no longer think of anything else. It's like we are carriers now. Uh, how, how easy was it for people who needed to, to be able to isolate? Was it feasible? Is it doable? It was doable, I, I guess, because they had to do it at their homes. So this was our, our emphasis because even during at the time when the COVID started, not everybody had the knowledge of how to deal with this and how to quarantine themselves. So now we had to say, keep yourself in your space where you feel like you'll be protected and then not to infect other members. Where clean wherever the surfaces and the door handles, wherever you are, so that you cannot infect someone else. So I think it was manageable because judging by the number that when we go now, because we are doing, um, we, we went back to our community to say, let's do another screening since we just heard that there might be another second wave. So 
I think it has subsided from the number that we had of people trying to say I've I've seen or I've had or I've been in contact with somebody who had COVID. So I think it was a steep learning curve for all of us. Do you think mm. people are better prepared then for the second wave? There's better understanding of what we need to do to keep ourselves safe. It's now, 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 now that we really need to make sure that we emphasize that people should be keeping themselves safe. Because people recently, they've uh, forgotten about washing their hands, they've forgotten about wearing their masks, they've forgotten about keeping distance. They, it, it, it's just like when it, it was said it's level one, people it, it, it thought it, 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 it said it's over. But now that we needed to instill that it is not over up until we think, yes, we are, as a country are safe. Because right now, I believe the negligence of people not wearing their mask or washing their hands is going to be like taking us back and putting us in that very same predicament or problems that we had before we even knew what was COVID, you know. Do you have an opinion or a comment to make around access to usual medical care that people needed and that that, that didn't happen because of the whole focus on COVID pandemic? When it comes to medication, I don't think people, even those who were having COVID, or let me say who were admitted to be positive of it, they went to, to the hospital. But we never, as community health workers, had somebody professionally and saying, I'm here, I've been uh, admitted, and this is what happens. Step by step, this is what happens, and this is what you get when you've got this. But in our local clinics, people are almost given your fluconazole, your allergics, uh, your panadol, and all those things. And those are the things that people are used to when you've got your normal flu. And then you'll be like, okay, probably it was uh, the myth that people were talking about and other things that they said you should be drinking like your your your, your, your herbal, everything that they mixed all the time and then quarantine yourself. Then you'll be like, whatever that's best that you think is best, then people can go ahead and do it as long as they, they, they sanitize, wash their hands and keep safe in their own homes. Because when it comes to medication, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I didn't think there was that kind of a medication people relied on. And were people weary of going to hospital? Were they worried about going to hospital because they wouldn't be able to see their family or they were unsure of what was going to happen, as you explained to us, you know, what the process would be and what they can expect in hospital? When it comes to the hospital situation, some people were even scared even to say, to agree that they've got symptoms uh, that might lead them to even test for this COVID. Because now they will be like, they test me, they find me positive, they take me to a hospital, then what? Because that's where I'm going to die. Because people, all, all the people that are going to the hospital, they, nobody comes back with the feedback that says, I'm fine, they've tried their level best, and this is how I came back. And then people will be able to trust that when they go to the hospital, then they come back and be fine. So they rather would have themselves quarantined in their own homes and sit around and self-medicate 
and say, okay, fine, those who went to the hospital and came back, it's because it's some kind of luck. And do you think if one was to be able to facilitate better communication between the family and those who were in the hospital, that that would have made a difference for people in terms of their experience, but also their worry and their resistance to going to hospital in the first place? I think if for someone to come and say, yes, this is what happened, it would have been better. But the problem is the stigma itself. When people are stigmatizing you when you are having a virus and thinking probably uh, uh, you are going to infect them with whatever that you've got, then those who, that are going to listen will be those who are thinking, okay, I just want to keep myself safe. But when you think about saying, if I've kept myself, we, we couldn't find a way where we say, I've kept myself safe because you didn't know where you can contract it. You can be infected because you go to a text, you use public transport and you don't know you, you can get infected. So for the ho- going to the hospital was like, it's another public hospital, so I can get infected even there. It was like, okay, we'll try. It sounds like the challenges were many, but you managed to navigate quite a few of them very effectively. Yes, we did. Okay, so I'm wondering whether we can move on to Notemba's story. On the 19th, I discovered that uh, I am COVID-19 positive. After I get sick, I am a cancer survivor. I go to the doctor because my left breast, I have an operation and it affected my left arm. It was too painful. But at that time, I didn't know the cause. The doctor gave me a medication, not knowing that there might be something else. My son was with me, and it happened that he was having an ear infection and go to the doctor. That doctor insisted that my son must take a COVID-19 test, and he did that. Uh, because of that, we were all supposed to go for test after the results are positive for my son. We, we, it was me, my son, and my husband. So we have to go for that test too, me and my husband, and we were also positive. After I discovered that, I think uh, I, my, I, I am a person who has a delay shock. I, I was not scared for myself. I was scared for my husband mostly because he's, he's a weak person, he's diabetic and high blood pressure, and, and the age was 64 years. So I was, I, was, I was just worried about him, not myself. Then the pains were started. The, my arm became worse. We were told not to meet anybody else anymore. We were told to isolate ourselves. We were told not to go out of the house. We, we have to stay home on different rooms. We're not seeing each other. We're not going to the kitchen at the same time. I, I, I have to report that to work. And fortunately, because of my chronic disease, I was not going to work. So at work, they were not affected because of me. I called my boss. My boss asked me, what do I need? They brought me the sanitizers surface one and the hand one they brought me the gloves the mask because we cannot meet they leave them at the gate i go get them at the gate i share them among us we use them my pain i lost smell first i lost taste my headache now and then my chest pain 
worse at night. Because of my age and, and after chemo, I, I, I was thinking maybe I'm aging. I was sweating. When I, I thinking I need something cold, I feel cold. I must get warm until a friend of mine sent me a message say you need to stay warm all the time. We need to steam. My friend of mine uh, brought me all the home remedies that were suggested. We were steaming on different times. On different, we're using different equipment because we cannot share anything with anybody. But the friends were bringing things. When we need something, we'll SMS a friend. They will bring things to the gate. We'll get it in the gate. Then we will share it. Uh, if it's, it's tablets, for instance, if it's, it's food like uh, veggies and fruit, they brought such things. They bought ginger. They they bring us a lot of things uh, that were helping us. But my husband complicate. Now that I'm positive, I decided I can't let my husband die, not in my house. I decided to call an ambulance because he was becoming weak and weak and was not taking the food at all. My son was in East London. So in East London, he was isolated there. The, the, the doctor, the private doctor, whom he get the test from, always called the doctors in Bloemfontein where we were staying uh, when Department of Health find out that we were having challenges they were calling to check us now and then my husband was admitted on the 26th of June later on July passed on three weeks passed on and the doctor was treating my husband saying the only problem that they are having uh, and the lungs are not clearing and is losing a lot of blood so my husband couldn't survive. They were after effects. They come up the kidneys, kidney failure. We have such a problem. And he couldn't breathe on his own. So they have to arrange that they are getting the machine for him. So that took more or less uh, three weeks for him. In the fourth week, then he couldn't bear the pain and passed on. The challenge that I think I need to tell the people is that if you discover that you are COVID-19, one, you don't need to get shocked. You don't need to have a fear. You don't need to be scared because I discovered many people are, are losing their life because they become shocked and confused and don't know where to start. You need to, to, to be focused, take care of yourself, keep yourself warm, take the, the, the medications. The home remedies did help us, especially the ginger and the lemon. Uh, they did help us a lot. We got to Umshonyane too. We were steaming, we were drinking, but uh, my doctor stopped me because I'm, I'm also diabetic and I also have a high blood pressure. Saying, uh, according to the investigation that is done, it's not really good for me. But nonetheless, I survived. Three weeks later, I, I feel fit again. I can feel the taste of food. I was not eating well because of the appetite. It goes away. I rather steam the veg. I was steaming the veg and taking it most of the time. And water. I was taking a lot of water, but this water must be warm, not cold water. The COVID-19 is beating people financially because this home remedy are not coming cheap. The other thing that is beating people is because you don't meet anybody. You need the family support. 
but over the phone, they were doing that. The people are running away from you. The stigma is the worst. I'm from rural. Here in, in, in town, it's not a problem. Friends and families that you have here, they came and leave things at the gate. At, at, at the rural, the people doesn't even want to come closer to the house. However you disinfect, you do everything. Many of them couldn't attend my husband's funeral. I understand the number is needed. There are people in, in, in your heart that are close in your heart that you know that at least should be here. But because of the stigma and, and, the, and the fear of the disease, everyone turned back on me. And they came a week, two weeks later after the funeral. So this stigma thing, it needs to be addressed because people need to understand. But by the time my husband died, was not COVID-19 positive anymore. And also I was not because it was already 30 days uh, over from the date of the status that we get the results. It was 30 days all already, but people were still running away from us. Actually, even today at, at the rural, they, they are scared to come closer. I think maybe they will come in a year or two, but mm -hmm. the, 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 the neighbors, because on my neighbor, there are a lot of, of them that were also get positive. The chest pains are still here. They haven't gone away. That's why I'm avoiding everything that is cold. The abdominal pains, I didn't have them much. The only thing that I had on the last week uh, of, of, of the 30th day, it was running stomach. For two days, I had a running stomach. I think water helped me there. Uh, and now I visited the doctor because I was already free. The doctor gave me some medication and, and give me more advice and make me to be cautious because now that I'm, I'm, I'm over 14 days, doesn't mean the COVID-19 is gone. So I'm, I'm, I'm still conscious about taking warm water, but at work, they also give me a lot of support at my work and my family. So I think people need a lot of that because at 12 o'clock when you are alone, you feel the pain and there's no one to call. It's so painfully. You, 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 you don't want a phone, you want to hug somebody. You want somebody who's going to tell you that it's going to be all right. So at the, at the time of, of isolation, there is no one. You are on your own. I think many people were suffered because of that loneliness, having nobody closer because of the guidelines of the COVID. I think I, I addressed you well. I don't know if you have any questions. Thank you. You did. Thank you very much for sharing. Yes. I, have, I have one question. Uh, in the time that your husband was admitted to hospital, how much yes. contact were you able to have with him? I, three days after was taken from home. He, he waked up. When he was leaving home, he was a bit like, unconscious when when you get to hospital we couldn't see him after three days he managed to call us saying he's feeling much better three days later but at the end of that day we couldn't speak to him since until death we couldn't see him we couldn't talk to him but i was calling uh, the hospital in the morning and in the evening and in between they were calling me the doctor also Dr. Bosch, I applaud that doctor because he was uh, giving me information 
for every step that he's taking and the condition of my husband. He was, they were giving me a feedback. I appreciated that until the end. But we couldn't see my husband. I remember there was a drug that they wanted to give him, but I was supposed to give a consent. I, I was only allowed to be on the reception. I couldn't go see my husband. So I, I, I didn't see my husband for three weeks before his death. Mm. I, the last time I saw my husband was when he was getting to the ambulance from home. Okay. And that is the, the worst pain of which I was thinking he also maybe need, need to hear me saying something. But I think when you are at hospital also, that thing of not communicating with family, unable to see, even if you cannot talk, to see them. I think that is also causing a lot of pain and it makes many people give up in life thinking they are alone. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Yes, it sounds like the isolation, uh, both at home and then from each other, once someone is admitted, is really uh, something that we really cannot underestimate in terms of the impact that this disease is having on everybody. Yes. I just hope South Africa can understand, even today, to take care of themselves. Because really, COVID-19 is, is, is so strong, so painful. One of my colleagues came back today, was hospitalized. He doesn't want to work. When we look, he, she looked at my eyes, he just cried, saying, I didn't know what you were going through while I, I was not positive. Now that I am positive, I know, and I wish the world can know how painful is this and take care of themselves before they caught by the COVID-19. I wish people can really understand it. Mm-hmm. And they can really also understand that people need support. They don't need to fear them. They need to just give them a word, say something, talk to the people. If you talk on the phone, you cannot cut this thing over the phone. Just tell the person, all is well, even if how much pain is going through. Mm-hmm. And the worst pain is that just pain. The, 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 I, I, I agree when they said it had something to do with lungs. There's something that it hit so burning, burning, it's burning there, that pain between the chest. I don't want to to think about that again. (laughs) I don't want to go through that. I don't want to hear anybody going through that pain. Chest pain, headache are the worst ones. Thank you very much. So it would be great if you can stay online and I'm going to now ask uh, Professor Gwither to share with her, with us her presentation and then if uh, if you have further comments, um, please feel free to interject and, and offer your, your thoughts. Thank you. Ntemba, I think it is so important that we hear your story because like you say, people don't understand what it's like until they get it. But you don't have to get it to understand when somebody tells their story so eloquently like you do. And I want to say thank you very much for sharing this with me and my condolences to you on the loss of your husband. That must have been such a dreadful time for you. Thank you. You are welcome. So now I about um, palliative home care and really to recognize that the palliative pandemic has had such an impact on everybody's lives and livelihood worldwide. But I want to compliment the health system and people like Bongalani and the wonderful work that they've been doing 
dedicating care to patients. And it's not just the doctors and the healthcare workers, it's the cleaners, it's the administrators, it's the volunteers. There's been a wonderful outreach to try and help people with um, COVID-19. So the big tragedy is the loss of life, as we hear from November. But there's a celebration in the recoveries, like November, even of those who were high-risk patients. I mean, November, with somebody with cancer to get COVID, we think, oh, that's so dangerous. So we celebrate that you have survived the COVID. There's also the celebration of the compassion and support that's shown within communities. Although you did also speak about stigma that kind of prevents people showing this compassion and support, there's still wonderful examples of this. So we have a national policy that the Department of Health developed for palliative care that says that there'll be palliative care in the um, community and at clinics and in hospitals. And so um, there may be palliative care wherever a person needs that care but most people mm. will be cared for in their homes and in their communities so home palliative care is a very important service and I want to just touch on which people need palliative care because a lot of people hear palliative care and don't know what it means or if they've heard it they think it's for people who are dying and at the end of their life but especially with COVID-19, it's not just at the end of life, it's people at home or in hospital who've got very distressing symptoms, that chest pain, that's difficulty with breathing, the fever, the headache, that needs palliative care. So all people even recovering from COVID-19 and complications require palliative care support. But there are some people for whom intensive treatments are not appropriate and they're not responding and they're offered palliative care. And I just want to emphasize that palliative care will listen to the patient, respect the patient's wishes and needs to improve their comfort, their quality of life and to uphold their dignity while they're sick. And I just want to comment that about 80% of people who are infected with the virus either will have no symptoms at all or will be very mild, that only 15% will develop severe disease, but that 5% of people do die from COVID, which is very sad. And I heard the statistics today in South Africa since the beginning of the pandemic, just over 18,500 people have died. And that's 5%. So you can think if you multiply that by to 80%, how many people have actually experienced the illness? And as Natemba and Bangalani say, the people who've got who are older and other medical conditions are also more at risk of a severe COVID. And the fact that the symptoms can escalate quickly. So the discussions about what care need to happen we need to have those discussions early. The pandemic has exposed that there are gaps in care. And Palprac, um, Margie and her colleagues, responded very early to have a guideline on how to um, help people with, who are infected with, and teach the doctors and the nurses good communication skills how to manage the symptoms and how to support the family. And the guidelines were used by the Western Cape Department of Health for their provincial palliative care position statement 
on the COVID response and Juanita Arantza will talk a bit about that. But we need to recognize it's a time of high anxiety and certainties. The doctors don't know what's happening. The patients don't know. People don't know what's happening. And a lot of distress. And that's aggravated with isolation and families not being able to visit patients in hospital. So we have to understand the experience. So Notemba's discussion with us has been so important so that we can support and care for people as best we can. And volunteers have also been very important to link the hospitals with information from doctors and having the time and skills to support the families. So it's been very important, the fact that we all have cell phones and that we may have a tablet that helps. Because one of the things in palliative care, we've always said you can't give bad news over the phone. But in COVID, we've had to depend on the phone. So we've had to learn new skills. And your doctor, Natemba, was obviously very skilled in being able to talk with compassion over the phone to be able to support you. But you also say that the family needs support from the community and for other members of the family when you're going through a crisis like this. What we find is that the family become the carers for any patients. Sometimes the healthcare worker will go into the home. Sometimes a general practitioner will go into the home, but mostly it's the family. And the benefit there is that the patient can be at home. They're surrounded by what's familiar. They're being cared for with love. And the family, they can have that close, continual contact with the family member who's ill and not that separation and, and one being in hospital and others being at home and not able to see them. But families are uncertain and insecure about their, the care they provide. So they need support and information and encouragement. And they do experience tiredness and exhaustion. And it impacts on the work and the social life. And there's a tremendous emotional and physical strain. So the support that family members need are practical support like a care package, Notemba was talking about what was left at the gate for her to collect, the soap, the mask, the sanitizer. They need to know about protecting others against infection and themselves. They need information about infection control, how to best nurse somebody at home and manage the symptoms. They need contact phone numbers. If there's a crisis, if things get worse, who can you contact? If you're not sure about what to do when the patient has a fever, what do you contact? And needing support from health workers in the community, the community health workers or home-based carers, the clinic, the GP, the hospice, and the community support, which as everybody's mentioning is so impacted by stigma and we need to um, put aside that stigma and anxiety and fear for ourselves and to reach out to the people who are actually suffering. So the palliative home care guidelines that were developed from the PALPRAC guidelines give information on basic nursing that can be done in the home by somebody who's not trained as a nurse, on managing symptoms at home, on washing, on dressing, on changing bedclothes, on pressure care, on caring for the mouth, on helping the patient to the toilet, what can they eat and drink, what medication can they take, and I've put here, and we'll ask um, Annalene and the People's Health Forum to, to circulate these website resources. 
because um, I'll just show what it kind of looks like. So there are all these leaflets that you can use or download, talking about the guidelines, talking about infection control at home, um, making the home environment ready if somebody's coming out of hospital, what kind of care, pressure care, how do we wash, and if person is coming close to the end of life, what um, to expect and what, you, what a person needs to do. But I just want to emphasize that at the heart of the, the palliative care is the patient and the family, trying to make sure the patient has physical comfort and that both the patient and the family have emotional and spiritual support. And I haven't spoken about, and I'm not going to speak to now, now about bereavement care, because the grief that happens when somebody dies, and what Natemba was talking about, being so separate from her husband and only seeing her husband for the last time when he got into the ambulance. And we think that when somebody's getting into an ambulance and going to hospital, they're going to get better at the hospital and come home. And her husband didn't come home. So um, I also see Dr. Nelia Drenth is on this call and she's an expert in bereavement care. So this needs a whole new and separate section and Linda Grief also doing lots of work in bereavement care. But I want to draw everyone's attention to this um, festival of love and loss that's being held, it's being organized by um, palliative care people in England, in the UK, you can register on the website that's there and it's next Saturday and Sunday. The attendance is free and we can learn about coping with grief and how to support somebody and somebody like Notemba who's lost her husband. We can help to support them through um, this particular loss. So I think that I haven't spoken about bereavement and how we can help, but it is another big thing that is happening with this COVID-19 epidemic that everybody is, has lost somebody close to them and how do we cope and go on with our lives when we've lost somebody so close to us. So that's what I wanted to um, speak to you about today and to give you some resources that will help home care for people who may be COVID positive either before they go to hospital or when they have a few um, problems and they're not so sick or when they come out of hospital again. So Margie, that was what I wanted to share with the audience today. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for that very good summary of, of what palliative care can offer. Gail, please go ahead. Hey. Uh, good uh, good afternoon, everyone. I actually just wanted to ask that uh, those CHWs who were infected with COVID-19, did they claim for COIDA and what was the outcome? Thank you. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Is there anyone in the audience who can assist? I think that's an important question, Gail, but I'm not sure that... Maybe I can just comment, and, and I don't know if my comment is a general comment, um, but all I'm aware of is that the NGOs that we work with for community, um, home and community-based care, we've, as part of the funding mechanism, is a contribution towards the WCA that they are responsible for, for the people that, that's employed through the NGO sector. So I know that through that processes, um, they would have to put through the claims, just like with um, staff working in the department, it's not an automatic thing, it's also a process of claiming um, 
and and you know the whole forms that need to be filled out etc so that's that's what i'm aware of in the western cape but i can't say that that's everywhere thanks juanita um, so could I hand over the floor to you now, Juanita? Maybe you can introduce yourself. I know you are really a big champion for palliative care and we're very grateful for your, for your championing and for your inputs and insights uh, in the Western Cape. Can I hand over to you? Thank you very much. Thank you, Margie. Thank you, everybody. I thought maybe just to pick up first of all with, um, with what Bongelani had put on the table. Um, and I think it's so important that we have a dependency on, on community health workers in offering our entire health services to the communities that we serve. And, um, and with that dependency, uh, community health workers are the ones who are accessing homes. And there's this whole um, issue between trust and risk. You know, trust is basically, as I think, Bongilani, you mentioned about relationships being built over time. And then stigma comes into play. And stigma then has a negative impact on, on those relationships that have been built over time. And then if you balance trust with risk and um, looking at the fact that patients, patient risk and patient to healthcare worker risk, the healthcare worker to patient risk, and then the fact that level one has people throwing caution to the wind has put us in a very difficult position. And I think the other thing that you mentioned, Bongalani, and thank you for giving such a comprehensive insight into what it is that you deal with on a daily basis is the fact that the fact that people have to juggle jobs, job losses, poverty, no food, and, and juggling that with cost implications for sanitizers and masks, etc. Um, it might seem like something trivial, but it's something so important. So I want to say thank you to you for flagging that and painting a picture of the true reality of what we face on the ground um, in, the, in, in the area that I'm responsible for, which is, the, um, which is one uh, substructure in the whole of the province in, in Western Cape. We are very dependent on 528 community health workers to assist us in, in engaging you know, between the, the, the facility and the community home. And then just to Notemba also, I think, just thank you for being um, vulnerable and sharing the way in which you shared with us. And I suppose the, the, the one thing that is our biggest ethical dilemma in the department is, is, is juggling how one protects staff and family with the need also to have family connection in this time because it is so needed um, and it helps with, with your processes in, in terms of moving forward. And, and your bereavement process that lies ahead. Um, and then I suppose um, maybe just to share with you in terms of COVID-19, what we've done in the, in the Western Cape, and, and we, we're grateful that we have a management team, and we've also then put in place a special facility for any of our known palliative care clients who are exposed to COVID-19, and we needed a safe space to hold them until we knew what their um, outcome was of their test result. And we tried as best as possible to keep the intermediate care facilities that our NGO run for our um, COVID-negative uh, palliative care patients who were decompensating and required admission. Um, and then we, we had a separate ward set up at one of our hospitals for um, palliative care patients who were known palliative care patients, but then were exposed to COVID-19 and needed support as well. All the hospitals were um, also supported, equipped, trained, um, linked to a palliative care expert. And thank you to PowerPrac and to PowerNet for, um, for helping with regards to all of that, coming together and having expertise available, whether they were tapped into or not, the fact is expertise was made available and it varied, you know, at various um, institutions. And then of course, for the PowerPrac team that, Help to put the uh, with the rest of the team that put together the clinical guidelines as well. So the majority of patients 
unfortunately during this time remained in the community, in the home, supported by the community health workers, supported by the local primary health care facility, um, and very few small numbers required admission for intermediate care and, and even into the, the ward for exposure. So, and, and every hospital also was, was urged to hold on to the clients themselves that were found to be eligible for palliative care and not to move patients sort of across the platform. Um, at the moment, we have still got one field hospital for COVID-19 that is available and that's the Brackengate Institution. And if any patient is identified as needing palliative care, then um, they get seen to there or they get moved depending on what is needed for that patient to the specific COVID-19 uh, palliative care ward at, at the hospital that we've got dedicated. So um, that's kind of how we held this space during the pandemic. Um, we also ensured that many people were trained um, and, and on the policy document that we had put out in this time, um, and we also made sure that our policy documents spoke to the known palliative care patient that is exposed or was, or was requiring extra support versus the COVID-19 palliative care patient that um, was, uh, was eligible for palliative care and, um, and then was, uh, but due to the COVID-19 um, um, disease, basically. So um, I think that is it for me to share with you without a presentation. Um, but I can also just share this presentation with Margie to send to all of you so that you can get a sense of how we try to hold things together in the Western Cape during this time. And then just also to acknowledge all our partners that have really helped to make this, this happen as a collaborative. It's impossible that um, the, the government, Western Cape government health um, would have been able to do anywhere near what it's done without partners, without experts, without all of you, um, because we're in the beginning stages of trying to integrate um, palliative care into, um, uh, into our health service. So by far, uh, uh, you know, uh, far off from, from really having it all together, and we probably never will have it all together because this is the kind of support that is required and spans across um, the health system as a whole. So thank you very much for that. Thanks, Juanita. We appreciate it. If, if there are, I do see that you've been made co-host now. Are there any specific slides you would like to share with us or do you think you've covered most now? And the two slides that are probably the most important is this particular one, just to show you that the plan that we put in place was cut, cut across the patient flow from the community setting, how we would deal with the negative patient, the COVID-19 negative patient who was a known palliative care patient versus the support we put in place for, the, for, for those who tested positive and were known. So essentially what our, our plan was um, sort of spread across the community setting, the primary health care facility and the support it offered, as well as the identified ward with the known palliative care COVID-19 positive client, and then how our hospital sort of came into, um, in, into position in terms of that as well. And then I suppose this slide just shares with you all that the modeling showed that in the Western Cape, 87.8% .8 of patients were cared for at home who developed COVID-19. And that 12.2% is what we had to do in the hospital. Some of them recovered really well and some of them were eligible for care and end-of-life care. And this slide just shows you how we did modeling and tried to identify the numbers of palliative care beds and end-of-life beds we would require at every level of care throughout the, the province. And this one, I suppose, is quite important to show that we had to think about what happens with a known palliative care patient who is COVID-19 negative, how he's cared for, he or she's cared for at home, 
and if they need further support, how we provide that support in an intermediate care facility, but if they're exposed to COVID-19, how we would deal with them in terms of having them tested, maintained in a safe space, and if they were negative, they would flow into intermediate care. If they were positive, we would still have the option on the table to be cared for in-home or to be um, um, cared for in a palliative care field sort of ward. And then, of course, this side is really to say the COVID-19 patient who then deteriorates, requires admission and either gets well or is withdrawn from ventilation or is never found eligible for ventilation to begin with um, and ends up being a palliative care patient. And many of these patients even have recovered really well, have gone home. Um, not all the patients obviously have demise. Um, and I think the last thing I want to probably flag with you is one of our biggest gaps I suppose one of our biggest gaps was spiritual care gap. Um, and that was something that took a lot of effort thanks to the support from the palliative care network, support from social workers and, 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 and many palliative care family physicians also to help to pull together um, volunteers that have joined us to offer um, spiritual care um, support during this time and then referrals to our social workers then in terms of continued uh, bereavement support. And... Um, yeah, and then of course also the fact that we were able to put out training, um, establish five different training videos on clinical care as well as spiritual care and bereavement support and breaking bad news um, to make sure that, you know, in, a, in an environment where, where, we, where we were not that far ahead, I mean, we were just the starting blocks that we could very quickly help to equip all of, of, of our clinicians and, and who would be playing a role in providing palliative care services to get them at least to a starting block place to deal with it under the circumstances. That's it from me. Thank you. Okay, that was one of the challenges right. when writing the guidelines was to <laughs> distinguish these groups between known palliative care patients who were positive and who were negative and then positive ones yeah. who needed palliative We got tangled in those, <laughs> in those various groups. Thank you. I'm a little curious to know and perhaps to ask people who work in the community uh, and maybe in other provinces other than the Western Cape, one of the indicators for palliative care would be access to morphine. And we know that morphine load at a very low dose helps well for, for pain and, and the dyspnea associated with COVID. Are you aware within the community of people having access to this? Was it prescribed? I think one of the things I wanted to ask uh, Bongalani was, uh, we had a few sessions on this as well, what, what did you have in place for yourself for self-care to keep you going and to keep you motivated in doing the work you needed to do? Are there any other people that can comment maybe what was put in place for them at work or within their teams uh, to support each other as a, as a working group? Hi, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm trying to come back to your question. I'm, I'm not, I'm not tech community health care workers, but I've worked with community health workers for about ten years. Um, yeah, this pandemic has come as a challenge to them. I, I'm sure they can speak on themselves, but then I think it's also a blessing in disguise because the issue of PPEs on them has never been highlighted uh, previously. They, we know that they were left in the peripheral of the health system. They were never taken serious into the, into the regarding <clears throat> uh, their concerns, their issues, and so forth. Some of them, they work for as little as 1,000 rand a month. Some of them, they, 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 they go through dry spells 
they are not recognized, they fight with the with the professionals and so forth. So this uh, COVID-19 is, is highlighted the plight of everyone. And I hope after this, we need to take lessons as to how do we acknowledge each other. This way the community health workers who are saving lives, who are saving billions of friends by early detecting and, com- and going into the community. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Tanasha. I think that's a very important point, uh, that those voices are not heard clearly enough and there was enough noise about PPE in hospitals, but essentially the same PPE uh, and amount of PPE is required for healthcare workers within the community. Um, I was just listening to what you were talking about, the, the PPEs and the COVID and so on. But I always have a question in my mind, and it, this question, I think, to me, is unanswerable. Because although we are wearing EPPEs, <laughs> but people, they still do get COVID. For instance, here in the hospital, the hospital, we are using EMASC N95, and we are wearing the apron as EK workers, and everybody is working in the facilities. So although we are wearing the apron, and the mask and the, and the shield, people they do get test positive for a COVID. So my wonder is how, which kind of PPE must we use? Because my question also comes again. We've got lots of nurses that passed away during the COVID-19 when it came and lots of doctors that passed away. My question was, were they not using the PPE? Because everybody was supposed to use the PPE during that time when the pandemic comes in, but we've lost lots of people in that. So I'm just wondering that we're, we're using protectives, but people still do get PPE COVID-19, even now, whilst we are still using the, 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 the PPEs, but now we're, we're no longer using it most of the time because most of people they've relaxed because it's, they said it's level one, but that time during that level one and le- I mean during those levels, levels five, four, three, the pandemic was very strong. But people they were wearing PPEs, but people they still got COVID during at that time. I just wanted to know about that. Thank you. I think that's a good question, uh, and I'll venture into a comment, and then someone else might. Add to that, I think uh, the one issue is to use that PPE correctly. So the donning and the doffing and the and how you do that, and then I think the other issue is that people do PPE properly at home. Uh, I mean at work, and then you go home, uh, or you sit in a tea room. Um, and from comments I've heard from colleagues in hospitals, their feeling was that people who were working even in close contact in ICU with patients uh, that the that the covid wasn't uh, um, that people weren't infected there but they were infected in other places uh, on their way home in a taxi or in the tea room or in their own home uh, where people were less um, less careful than they would have been at home uh, in at their workplace any other comments on that we have two more questions here from um, from Kezia Lewins, the one is how easy or difficult uh, do teams feel it was to take care of palliative care patients at home or in hospital during the context of uh, COVID-19? 
And then the other is, um, are palliative care team members, do they feel that they are being recognized more in the healthcare sector as a result of COVID-19? So from, from my own experience, caring for palliative care patients uh, at home was tricky. Um, one, because they, you know, there are definitely patients who are at higher risk of contracting the virus or of getting really ill when they, when they contract the virus. So one wanted to avoid unnecessary contact as much as possible. I used um, uh, telemedicine quite a bit if it was a patient that was well known to me. Um, but not everyone has that ability, doesn't have data or, or finds it difficult to use um, technology. So that was one tricky bit. And the other was that just with the whole PPE, the usual contact that one has, type of contact that one has with the patient was difficult. Uh, not being able to touch, wearing a mask, uh, elderly people not being able to hear properly, and then you add a mask to that was complicated. I think the other thing that was hard for patients was that their family members uh, felt that they were also um, increasing the risk to their loved ones if they came to visit. So they were often very isolated and sometimes the whole caring issue was a problem. Who who could you who was willing to come and care for patients at home um, and the in and out of, of many people in the house was definitely complex issues during during COVID. And then to the second question around palliative care team members feel as though they're being recognized more, I think Definitely palliative care has had a lot of airtime during COVID. And I think the gap in palliative care services has definitely been highlighted. Um, there are a few hospitals who have trained palliative care uh, healthcare workers or people who have even had the basic training in healthcare uh, was not available. Um, so I think that that gap has definitely been highlighted and the urgency to integrate palliative care and healthcare services has been clearly identified. Hopefully some action will follow on that. Tepo, I see your hand is up. Yes, I had a comment about the spiritual care, you know, that was uh, lacking. Uh, as a priest, you know, it was very difficult, you know, because we were cut off completely. Yes, I was saying, uh, as the uh, spiritual uh, givers, you know, caregivers, it was difficult, you know, because uh, some people you couldn't even phone, you couldn't talk to them and whatever. And uh, in terms of really family care and whatever, I think uh, we realize more fear than uh, neglect or whatever as people were really fearing either to confront the COVID themselves or to maybe expose those people. Yes, what I'm saying is that, uh, yes, uh, you know, I used to uh, work in the HIV and AIDS, and you know, I always uh, make this uh, comment that immediately people, they, you know, hope is raised. The physical uh, healing really follows naturally, you know. So now if uh, you are confronted with diseases like uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, it is difficult because you are not able to give that uh, spiritual support uh, that is going to raise the hope of the people so that they can actually do what is right, you know, in terms of their physical well-being. 
we know that a lot of uh, people died of HIV because of not actually following the right lifestyle, you know, of people that are infected. But if you are confronted with uh, COVID where you cannot even come close or you cannot communicate, it is difficult how that uh, spiritual or emotional support is given. Agreed. Thank you, Tepo. In the conversations, and we had them every two, uh, twice a week in the conversations around COVID and palliative care, that was one of the things that was highlighted most often, I think, was how to, be, how to skillfully, despite all the regulations, to integrate the, the emotional and the spiritual care of people who are ill at home or who have been admitted to hospital. I think that was an ongoing challenge uh, for everybody and I think will be one of the legacies that COVID leaves us in terms of bereavement. Uh, there was also, I think sometimes hospitals were quite, uh, were, you know, were busy places and because of systems not being in place, uh, it was hard for those inside hospitals to link up with the support that was available outside. People were not used to working like that and so that was also a challenge. But I know of a few institutions where that was made possible by, by, you know, by being creative and, and organizing a system where, where that care was, was being offered, even though it wasn't the usual type of quality care that one would like to offer. Yes, just to the credit of COVID, really, I think we have learned a lot, you know, in terms of uh, virtual uh, sort of communication and uh, you know, bridging those, uh, you know, because we were still able to hold services and uh, do whatever we needed to do, even uh, bless the Eucharist, you know, on virtual Zooms and whatever. So I think this has actually set another platform, you know, that is going to really leave a legacy for avoiding costly meetings of having to fly, be accommodated, be catered for, you know. I think uh, in in terms of that, even on that, uh, 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 I think as you are saying, uh, Maggie, there were some creative ways of trying to uh, mediate that uh, uh, physical presence by uh, maybe uh, doing some virtual things with those people that we needed to minister to. Yeah, agreed. I think one of the other things that the People's Coalition can fight for is is uh, lower data costs. <laughs> Because data, access to data because of the cost was a huge issue every time we, we did discuss this. Sharon, uh, I see you've in the chat mentioned that at Victoria Hospital in Cape Town, you were able to integrate uh, psychosocial and, and spiritual care quite effectively. Would you mind sharing with us how you did that? Oh, thank you. Initially, uh, fairly near the beginning, had um, several uh, clients. I'm with Triangle Project, an LGBTI organization, and had a, a few um, of our clients in Victoria. I, I just, the staff were so phenomenal and the doctors were so phenomenal. I mean, it was very clear that they were completely overwhelmed and you had doctors answering the telephone um, and yet every step of the way um, we were being called on in terms of support for somebody they were going to discharge um, into palliative care that we provided. Um, and in one instance, a death um, and the, the couple were both 85 and been together for 65 years. 
And they actually, I don't even know if I should be saying this, but I'm going to. They let me go in to the ward and and break that news to uh, the surviving spouse. Um, you know, it took ages to be PPE'd up. But I thought they showed considerable um, just compassion and care and and reaching out for the support they needed when they didn't know if the partner was understanding what they were saying about the deceased spouse. So it was a really good experience there. Great. Thanks for sharing. I would like to thank all the speakers for their contributions this afternoon. I think we've all learned a lot, uh, have been left with a lot to think about. And I'd like to thank Linda Grief and her team for putting this together uh, and allowing us the space to share, especially with the second wave coming on. I think these lessons that have been learned will serve us well in that time. Thank you very much.